When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Cable news is ripping us apart, dividing the nation, making it impossible to function as a society and to know what is true and what is false. The good news is that they're failing and they know it. That is why we're building something new. Be part of creating a new, better, healthier, and more trustworthy mainstream by becoming a Breaking Points premium member today at breakingpoints.com. Your hard-earned money is going to help us build for the midterms and the upcoming presidential election so we can provide unparalleled coverage of what is sure to be one of the most pivotal moments in American history. So what are you waiting for? Go to breakingpoints.com to help us out. Good Friday morning. Welcome to CounterPoints. We got an incredibly packed show today. I'm going to have to probably trim some of the context out of my <laughs> long and rambling answers today. There's so much to get to. I mean, the, the, the hurricane is still barreling its way uh, through this country, wishing everybody in South Carolina the best at Florida, re- recovering these apocalyptic scenes that we're, that we're seeing down there. Reports suggest death tolls already in the hundreds. Um, just, we have no idea where that number's going to land. Just absolutely, absolutely brutal. Uh, we'll have we'll have more on that uh, next week. This week we have so much to get through in terms of both domestic and global politics. Uh, there's there's an, a presidential election in Brazil that we're going to talk about later. That's coming up on Sunday. We had, we had elections in Italy, and we have elections in the United States of America coming up. That's right. And so we can start with let's start with Pennsylvania, right? So the Fetterman odds, the the polls that were coming out over the last uh, several months that were showing Fetterman with these double-digit leads. <laughs> I think they were, they were fun to see, and, and I think we have an element there. Uh, they, they, were, they were fun to see from the left. It's, like, oh, it's, always, it's always fun to see Dr. Oz getting owned. <laughs> but I don't think anybody took them you know, too seriously to the extent that Fetterman was actually going to win by double digits. It's, it's still Pennsylvania. Now, Shapiro, the gubernatorial candidate, he may actually end up winning by 10 points against Mastriano, and I'm curious for your your take on this. This is a this is a case where uh, Republican the the hardcore MAGA wing really got the guy they wanted, <laughs> and the Democrats got the guy they wanted, Mastriano, and it looks like he's getting utterly hammered. So I'm wondering, do you think he has any shot whatsoever? And how do you think that race 
kind of influences the Senate race. Does it lead to more ticket splitting or does it drag Oz down? I think it probably leads to higher turnout and enthusiasm. And that's what midterm elections are really all about. And, On both sides? Right, exactly. And who, well, oh, yes. So who, who benefits from that right. is the big question. And I can see that actually being uh, a motivator on both sides in a way that Oz and Fetterman aren't. Uh, maybe Oz is a big draw. I don't know. I, I highly doubt draw that. draw on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but actually, what's, what's interesting about this is over the course of the summer, those polls were coming out with Fetterman up. And that was, I think, for people taking that seriously, which included the establishment wing of the Republican Party that was unhappy with the mm-hmm. choices in the Pennsylvania primary and has been unhappy with certain races from Blake Masters to J.D. Vance. They took that very seriously. And it was another sort of uh, piece of this increasing tension between the establishment and maybe the, the sort of MAGA wing of the Republican Party. And that was always, I think, foolish because until the money starts pouring into these races in the fall after Labor Day. When that Mm -hmm. starts happening, you see the messaging on both sides start to congeal, and you see the momentum start pushing in the direction that it will ultimately end up in. And so some of these summer analyses, whether they were in Ohio or Pennsylvania, I think were, or Georgia for that matter, um, that's not to say, you know, I think everyone is is a great candidate on the Republican slate, far from it. Um, But I do think that there was a lot of premature Uh, A a lot of premature anxiety, both in Republican areas and a lot of premature enthusiasm in Democratic areas. And I'll add to that, there are a lot of serious pollsters that I would argue are center left Mm -hmm. who are still saying that we are not gauging uh, actual voting patterns very well, especially in Rust Belt states that happen to be, once again, the critical key race states uh, going forward. Right. These uh, the, The theory in 2016, which seems to be borne out somewhat over the past, you know, couple cycles, is this this silent or Trump voter, this vo- this voter who uh, non responding to polls is, is just is just refusing to participate in that process. In, and there have always been millions of people who don't want to participate in that process. But the difference has been that there were just as many Democrats, Independents, as Repu- and Republicans <laughs> who didn't want to participate in it, so it didn't mess up your numbers. Now it does seem weighted to Republicans in twenty twenty. Uh, you know, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin in particular, uh, the polls missed substantially. Huge. So it feels like Fetterman, to feel comfortable on election night, kind of needs a five or six point lead and going his, in. His margin now is already down to four and two. And we, mm-hmm. we had an element that showed it that these, yeah, Nate these Cohen big, showing some. Yeah, Nate Cohn showing these big decreases. And I, I actually don't really know how that plays out for Mastriano. Um, but I do think it is it, it, a lot of the typical Beltway horse race. Um, over the summer, that analysis jumped the gun in big ways, knowing or should probably should have known. It's it's an interesting example of how the media tries to or can influence the way money goes into these races and the way elections look. Because if all of the chatter is like Oz is a dud, um, everyone in Pennsylvania loves Fetterman, that totally changes the way that people in D.C. let it change the way that they look at these different races. And it conditions the consultants and all of these different people to see things out of whack with what they actually are. And I think the point about Wisconsin is a really good one. Even Mitch McConnell abandoned Ron Johnson mm-hmm. in his last race. Right. That's, that is actually really a huge, huge sign of, of how badly or how bad D.C. is at reading tea leaves these days. Right. And at the same time, Fetterman's stroke, I think, played a role in this in, mm-hmm. in, a, in a significant way. 
he had he hasn't been able to campaign like he was able to campaign up until the primary, and that didn't really sink in for a lot of people uh, for s- several weeks, you know, past the primary. Now, now we are we are getting a real sense that uh, you know that his re- his recovery is not complete yet, mm-hmm. and you know he's he's starting to address that more head on, uh, which I think is which I think is the right thing to do, and and to emphasize, look, this is a, this is a recovery process, like this is I'm, I'm going to continue to you know, improve. These are the things I need to do to improve. Uh, but it is, it's campaigning with a, with a hand tied behind your back. But let, let's go, let's go quickly around the country. I, yeah. Arizona, the conventional wisdom in DC seems to be that Kelly is in a, Mark Kelly, a Democrat, is in a very strong position there. Mm-hmm. Is that, how are Republicans feeling about Arizona at this point? Well, that race is one of the most contentious in terms of this inner Nicene battle in the Republican Party because it was clear that uh, Mitch McConnell wanted Peter Thiel to put more of his own money into it. McConnell pulled some uh, ads in August. or It was around Labor Day. McConnell pulled some mm-hmm. planned ads for Blake Masters. Blake Masters is sort of championed by the, the new right wing of the party. I, we interviewed him. Mm-hmm. Once. I, I think he's a, a very interesting candidate, um, and I like a lot of what he says. Uh, but the Mitch McConnells of the world are now saying this is not winnable. McConnell's doing a couple of fundraisers for him, uh, but still. Candidate quality. Was he, ref- he was referring partly to Masters probably, right? Candidate quality, yeah. right. Yeah. And this is Mitch McConnell saying that in August, the Senate Majority Leader right. starting to turn his fire on the candidates uh, going into the election cycle. And I think probably, Ryan, partially because of this incorrect reading of the tea leaves, I do think Masters is a better candidate than a lot of people in D.C. realize. And I do think the more that we see money going into that race on both sides of it. Um, I'm not just talking about money going into masters. Um, I'm talking about just in general when you have the the resources that are actually going to look like what they look like in the weeks before election day. So people are on the message that they want to be running on before election day. And as we get closer to election day and people are actually voting, um, I, I think masters is going to close the gap and I think it's going to be a close election. I'm not, I, I wouldn't be surprised um, if it's closer than what a lot of people in D.C. realize. Now, Masters may lose. Right. I don't know. Uh, but at the end of the day, that is one of the ho- most, like, if you're looking for a race that shows all of the different dynamics in the Republican Party, yeah. look at our Arizona. And New Hampshire, I thought, was going to be the state that was the sleeper that was going to be the most likely to flip Democrat to Republican. Yeah. Uh, but then Republicans nominated this uh, interesting character, for, uh, retired general, I forget the guy's name. Don Bolduc, yeah. Uh, um, who, kind of a Twitter character, uh, <laughs> kind of fo- followed his his uh, his timeline. It's a lot of fun. Uh, I interviewed him once as well. Did you? He's, yeah, he's very charismatic. Interesting dude. Uh, but it, it seems like everybody's taken New Hampshire off the map now. Mm-hmm. That it looks like uh, Maggie Hassan went from kind of either toss-up to likely Republican to now like comfortable Democrat. Is it is 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 Balduk that unappealing to kind of swing voting New Hampshire voters that it's this race is over? Yeah, I like, don't is know that how you're feeling about this race. I don't know. New Hampshire is such an interesting state, and you probably would know more about this than I do. But the New Hampshire voters are not your tip, especially on the Republican side, not your typical Republican voters yeah. at all. Sort of more libertarian leaning, which is makes it an interesting test case in the kind of MAGA moment. <laughs> like yeah. how, are, how are New Hampshire Republicans right. reacting to uh, more MAGA Republicans? I think is actually kind of a fascinating case study. Yeah. So I don't know. I have absolutely no idea what's going, what, what's happening in New Hampshire, but. 
I do think uh, the context of the economy right now, where in the summer Democrats started to feel really good, August had passed the Inflation Reduction Act, gas prices had come down a little bit. Mm -hmm. They were still really high. Um, all of that context, I think, had Democrats feeling way better than they should have been about the fall in August. And now that we're almost in October, I mean, we're doing this block and next time we're here, we'll be October. We'll be about a month away from the elections. Um, the economy is, is looking worse and the Inflation Reduction right. Act and the, the correlation between the Inflation Reduction Act and the stock market is pretty bad for right. Democrats because you can see it uh, just dipping as soon as it's passed, whether or not it, you can sort of parse I mean, that Jerome Powell, ways. but yes. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Of course, you can parse that in different ways. The effect on average Americans under a Biden administration, though, is not good for Democrats. It's a drag on these tickets. And speaking of which, we'll be here Wednesday next week. That's right. Well, we'll yeah. be pre-taping Wednesday. Next I think week. we're going to air it on Wednesday. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Because we'll both be gone for the for the weekend, Columbus Day weekend. That's I think right. We're going to air it on Wednesday. Yeah. Okay. We'll look, look forward we'll, to that. There'll be old news by Friday. <laughs> yeah. Old news. That's true. Uh, so I, so I, I now think the sleeper is Nevada. Tell me that, more. That so Cortez Mastow is running for re-election. She's a Democrat in in Nevada, and I think that. Nevada got hit, Las Vegas in particular, got hit harder than almost anywhere in the country by the pandemic, mm. and particularly by policies that are associated with Democrats shutting down, shutting down the economy. The Las, Las Vegas economy just was completely annihilated. And mm. as a result, um, you have this widespread economic misery. And to the extent that uh, Las Vegas was the place that you know powered Democrats so that they could overcome the rest of the state. If if they lose just a small margin in Vegas, then that's that's a, that's enough for them. And and with a lot of the uh, kind of Mexican American population down there, uh, there the abortion issue might might not have the same kind of resonance that it would have mm -hmm. in other parts of the, the country. That the, the voters that Democrats really rely on in Vegas. So I, I, and, and I believe the, the Nevada got, Nevada Republicans got the like kind of non-scary Republican that they wanted to, mm -hmm. right, in the, in the primary. And so you don't have, you don't have the, the kind of MAGA effect that's going to drag a couple points off of. Off of the Republican. Although the counter, the counterpoint to right. that is um, in midterm elections, which are about energy and turnout, the MAGA Republican candidates. And if you're looking at somebody like, for instance, J.D. Vance, these are people where, or Herschel Walker might be an mm -hmm. example, um, where you actually do energize voters who actually want to go out and not vote for the milk toast, uh, you know, Mitt Romney Republican, but are energized to go out and, and be a part of what they see as change. And that's on both sides. That's not just about Republicans, but that is what a lot of D.C. Republicans uh, cannot wrap their heads around about right. the MAGA base, is that the average Republican voter is actually very, very excited about, and actually these people do uh, appeal to the average Republican voter, even if it makes Mitch McConnell uncomfortable, um, it, it can actually have an effect on the outcome. I, I love that you're all in on the turnout idea because on, on the left, I a thousand percent believe that if you if you put like a Sanders wing candidate out there, you're going <laughs> to inspire people to come out to the polls, give them something to actually vote for. When I look over at the other side, I'm like, nobody's going to want to come out for them. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> oh, like, I got to go vote for Joe Crowley. <laughs> um, so it, it's funny. Yeah, it is. I, I don't know why I can't get my head around the idea that 
there could be an advantage to ha- running some of these MAGA candidates. I mean, you're it from just, Pennsylvania. I, right, and and the, Pennsylvania is a lot of suburbs. It's true that it's 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 true that like the Carville thing, you got Philadelphia one side, Pittsburgh on the other, and Alabama in the middle. There, there's still a lot of truth to that, but there's also a like there's a a massive suburban vote in Pennsylvania that is is turned off by a lot of that stuff. True, and it would and would and is you know would be turned off by some of the like if AOC was like on the ticket. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And both parties know that, and that's why they start targeting these suburban, especially educated suburban women. That's become this like just treasure trove demographic for for both parties. But at the same time, I think the other thing that factors into this, I mean, abortion clearly will I think have some effect, but you also then have education, which. Totally. If you, if you look at what happened in Virginia with Glenn Youngkin just a year ago, favors Republicans if they run on the issue in a in an appealing and convincing right. way, which is a very big if. <laughs> and speaking of the viability of far right candidates, uh, <laughs> Italian voters went to the polls on to, on what Tuesday, and uh, and uh, elected Georgia Milani as the uh, incoming prime minister of Italy. Uh, a lot, of, a lot of debate over whether to call her fascist or not. The, no, the party. don't call <laughs> But the, So the party, like what the history of the party, it, it, yeah. it, it evolved from a party that evolved from a party that evolved from Mussolini's party. Uh, you know, she, she used to, in the old, in the old days, say nice things about Mussolini. Right. Recently, uh, she's, been, she's broken with Mussolini. She said, I'm not, not, a, not a fan of Mussolini. <laughs> um, uh, she's, she's pro-EU. Uh, she's yeah. kind of pro NATO, pro NATO, pro the Ukraine war, yeah. um, or pro the Ukraine side of the war. Um, and there, there were some uh, jokes on Twitter. I don't know if there were jokes on Twitter when when Zelensky's like, "Congratulations!" A bunch of people on the left are like, "See, we told you he was a Nazi." <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, look, they're buddying up with this other Nazi down here in Italy. Yeah, those weren't jokes. And so there was another. Uh, there was another. There was kind of a left wing working class uh, kind of coalition that was running as well. Kind of the. the the five-star movement, which used to be, you know, which started as kind of a post-partisan, kind of populist-ish type of thing with, mo- with that was mostly left-coded, but some right populism. Uh, they, when they got into power, they implemented a universal basic income, particularly down in, the, down in the South, and did a bunch of other things that really had tried to appeal to the material interests of the working class. Maloney really very much appealing to the cultural interests, you know, anti-immigrant, the what, what you would generously call pro-family. And it seems like by a, at least a three-to-one margin, uh, the working class voters were, were more moved by the cultural uh, elements that she was offering than, the five, than what the five-star folks were bringing. And one of her first acts was to just nix the, the universal basic income, like done. Done with that. So, what, what, what do we what do we draw what do we draw from this about where our uh, confusing kind of working class material versus cultural politics are headed? It's so interesting that from an American perspective. I think we try to sometimes graft the American left-right dichotomy onto elections where there are way more than the two-party system. Mm-hmm. So, like, if, you, if your choice is Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, the handicap there is we're suddenly acting as though the entire country loves Donald Trump or hates Hillary Clinton, and that's just not the case. It's always more nuanced than that. And this example is so instructive because of exactly the dynamic you just said, that cultural issues prove to be more salient for well, how much of the vote did she win? 
turn 20, 28%, 26, 28. Yeah. Um, t- that, that chunk of the voter base, but that's not a resounding majority. I mean, far from it, enough to win the election, but not exactly a majority. And then when you juxtapose it side by side um, with the working class, party uh, or the yeah so the, what's interesting about that is it shows particularly I think what the American right misses which is that and what the left really mit- misses which is that the culture war can be kind of the big tent that's something we say at the Federalists a lot the mm-hmm. the culture is the big tent um, because people's interests the their sort of material financial interests um, they those two things go together so if you can't speak your mind at work uh, without fear of losing your job and you need the job Mm-hmm. Um, or you can't talk about your, you feel like you can't talk about your faith. Whether or not you can actually do it is different than whether you feel like you can do it. So take something like Maloney talks about people's faith um, or their patriotism. People feel like they can't talk about that without suffering financial consequences. Right. Those two things are actually completely intertwined. And the left does a really poor job, I think, of of recognizing that and addressing it um, by also tackling this the sort of really discomforting, alienating culture. And encoding immigration as purely cultural is probably part of that too, because in Europe you have a lot of left-wing parties now. The Sweden Democrats. anti-immigrant. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this yeah. this happened. I, I don't think people. I, I mean, I don't know. It's again, it's difficult to like graft the left-right dichotomy from America into. But this is on the heels of what happened in Sweden. It also reminded me a lot of what we covered previously in France, um, with the juxtaposition of uh, like National Front, Marine Le Pen, mm-hmm. and also uh, you have a, a sort of far left. Uh, you can't really call Bernie candidate, but kind of in that yeah. vein, um, doing okay at the same time. And that's really the real competition. Macron benefits from it because you have these, these two, the split between those two. Um, but yeah, immigration, that's exactly, I think uh, the point, it it illustrates the point so well because there are people's both cultural and material concerns on the table. And to dismiss that as bigotry, necessarily as bigotry and, and not as possibly anything else, reasonable, good faith disagreement. Um, and you can disagree about the politicians, whether they're coming to, to it in good faith, but voters, yeah. that's a different question. And I just think the left is struggling so much right now. And Europe is a great example. They, they have yet to muster a really good response. Yeah. And, and in some ways, the, the parliamentary system allows you to draw out a little bit more of the, the texture and the distinctions mm-hmm. in ways that are obscured here. AOC famously said a couple years ago, uh, if, if we were in Europe, I wouldn't be in the same party as Joe Manchin, which was taken as like a shot, but also just a fact. Like, yeah. like that's just an objective fact. They would be in different parties. And so there, there's, there was a center-left kind of technocratic party in Europe, I think led by a guy named Lata, who, uh, who refused to kind of link up with the more working class left, left parties uh, because there, there was, all, you know, t- Italian politics is incredibly factional, but for our purposes, like the materialism behind it was was related to uh, blaming them for kind of t- tossing tossing them out of power, like mm-hmm. blaming some of these other factions for tossing them out of power years past, like just you know old, just score settling and grudges. So they so they didn't team up, but it's not clear that they could have necessarily even teamed up because they represent the kind of wing of the Democratic Party, what you would call the, the kind of upper middle class professional class element of it, which has which in the U.S. Uh, is is married together in this one giant party, and so it's harder for us to see the 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 kind of difficult the, the strains 
on the, in the strains mm-hmm. that are trying to keep that together. Whereas in, in Italy, you can just see it much more clearly that there's a kind of both cultural and class distinction mm-hmm. between these elements of the, of the broad left that make it very difficult for them to team up. They, they just don't like each other mm-hmm. in, in a lot of ways. And, and these center-left kind of and center-right technocratic parties in Europe are blamed for taking Europe from, you know, its, its boom period of the 60s, 70s um, to, what, to what it is now. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and and I I think also yeah that's where you're going to see I mean we we showed the subsidy cut right away that's where you're going to see mm-hmm. this interesting like return of maybe austerity with a super pro EU pro NATO um, kind of pro like European or order basically you know what I mean right. mm-hmm. attached to this agenda of cultural populism center right cultural populism I would say and if we could put B5 up on the screen that would be great um, because I think this <laughs> this uh, Larry Summers tweet really is the perfect <laughs> tweet he's talking about America but he says there's some social phenomenon which I suspect explains non-work non-marriage does of despair general alienation and I suspect the rise of reactionary populism. It should be a major task of social science to understand it. Yes, thank you, Larry Summers, uh, 10 years behind the curve on that one. But I think it's just fascinating to see, uh, to your point about the technocratic candidates, it's fascinating how much they fail to to come up or muster a legitimate, genuine, decent response in terms of policy, in terms of messaging to the rise of what Larry Summers is calling reactionary populism, uh, precisely because, I mean, this week, the Maloney speech suddenly just gets scraped from YouTube. The same thing actually happened to Matt Taibbi. He had a video demonetized yesterday that was then restored. Um, And then the Maloney video ultimately was restored and said it was an error. She was called the steady drumbeat of fascist, fascist, fascist. I think the New York Times had a story that used the word fascist like 28 times in a story about this woman who loves the EU (laughs) and NATO. So it, it just like, if that's the response is to reflexively dismiss everybody as a fascist and bigot, um, the populism is not going to go anywhere. It will only grow because that's exactly what drives it and what animates it. And we all laughed at the Larry Summers quote, but I'm curious if we actually have the same answer because I think we, we all think it's obvious. But to me, the, it's neoliberalism. Uh, yeah. Is that what you were like when, when you when you look at it like, hey, yeah, yeah, it's, it's you, Larry. Yeah. Absolutely, 100%. We're look- yeah, we're all looking for the guy who did this. Well, and I know people get frustrated in, in because the word neoliberalism becomes used as a catch-all and sort of a, an easy slur mm-hmm. for populists. Um, but neoliberalism, I think, properly does encapsulate uh, the, the cultural and the economic policies and the marriage of those that people like Larry Summers sort of just dismissed or, or didn't see the serious, serious concerns of uh, what, what was happening when you're hollowing out the Rust Belt, when you're deindustrializing, when you're opening up uh, trade and borders with you know reckless abandon and and not you know implementing policies that would at least be perhaps a safeguard or would would do that more responsibly, getting super rich and creating this huge uh, growth of of inequality. I mean, it's neoliberalism. It's no problem saying that. It was a rough day for the left in Italy this week, but on Sunday. The left has a chance to uh, gain a little bit of that ground back as Brazilian voters are going to go to the polls for the first round in, uh, pre- in presidential voting. 
pit, pitting uh, Jair Bolsonaro, the incumbent uh, right-wing president down in Brazil, against Lula da Silva, former president who was in prison at this time in 2018 during the last presidential election. Here in the United States, we have you know, a decent number of people who either joke or say, Bernie would have won, talking about, 20, talking about 2016. Down in Brazil, uh, the, the line is Lula would have won, but everybody takes that quite seriously, <laughs> left to right. Like, Lula would have won in 2018 were he not in prison. He is no longer in, in prison. And want to pause and, and recognize my colleagues at uh, The Intercept Brazil. Mm-hmm. Uh, for their work there. Uh, Glenn, Glenn Greenwald, former colleague, um, got, got a massive cache of, of documents and messages that proved that the, the prosecution of Lula was entirely political, po- uh, politically driven and manipulated and timed so that he, could, he would be in prison during the election. Mm. Like, and all, all the messages were... Uh, were uh, you know, pr- prove the case, which go- goes to actually a question we talk about a lot: uh, hacked materials. Because it turned out that these were these were hacked um, by by people who by citizens who had a, had a sense that this was the case, hacked and then leaked to the press. And so, whenever anybody has a question of is it okay to publish hacked documents, I would say, well, Lula is free and potentially on his way to becoming. Uh, president of Brazil again. Polls have him at 51, 52% at this point with still some 10 to 20% undecided on top of that. And if if he wins 50% on Sunday, there's no second round. That's a knockout first round win. Hmm. So the polls say that he will because if he's polling at 51 and let's say he gets a quarter of the undecideds, that's pushing him to 55, 60% of the vote. Bolsonaro is already saying polls are fake. I got secret Bolsonaro voters all over the place. I'm not recognizing these, uh, these, this tally if it comes through, which has put the United States in a fascinating position because the U.S. has signaled, no, we are going to recognize the results of this election, which means that maybe for the first time ever, the U.S. is working against a right-wing coup in South America. <laughs> wow, things like, have changed. Weird. <laughs> weird. But I actually think it's part of our partisan polarization because— I think Democrats in the U.S. associate Bolsonaro with Trumpism yes, and Trump absolutely, and associate the social democratic left and Lula with kind of Democrats. And so their partisanship overwhelms their, their kind, of, kind of structural impulse toward supporting right-wing coups in South America. It's like, wait, the U.S., wait, there have, there have to be strong forces pushing back to have this U.S. State Department saying that they're going to be hands-off on a right-wing coup. Like, that's... And so that's, I think, how strong partisanship is now in this... Uh, and, it's, and it's going global. To be fair, we have not checked in with the CIA. Right. <laughs> well, you know, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. No, good point. Uh, so yeah. it, the, the tweet that was just up on the screen for everybody listening showed that Senator Bernie Sanders and Tim Kaine had a resolution that was passed um, over in the Senate to support the free and fair elections in Brazil. I have seen media speculation that there could be political violence this weekend. Oh, there will be political violence, yeah. Tell us more about that. Uh, the, 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 the intensity of our politics here in the U.S., just crank it up. Uh, you know, by a, several magnitudes. There already has That's, been violence right. in this election. Back in July, someone was shot. And well, in 2018, Bolsonaro was stabbed, mm-hmm. like literally stabbed, uh, almost killed during during the election. So it 
you know, it, it cuts both ways, but it's mostly Bolsonaristas who are beaten up who are beating up people uh, in the streets. And Bolsonaro has been sending all sorts of signals uh, saying, to, saying to his supporters you know, after the election, quote, you know what to do. Like that's, that's the code. And it's not, that's not very impressive code. Like you know, you know what to do is they do know what to do. Um, and he has stacked his administration with a ton of military figures. And he has openly praised the military dictatorship over his entire career. Uh, he... Uh, he has said that Brazil would be better off if it went back to a military dictatorship. But just like Trump, he, there are a lot of elements within the military that, that are alienated by him, that, mm-hmm. that are not necessarily supportive of him. And also, if you're in the Brazilian military, you take more orders from the United States uh, than you do necessarily from the civilian government in Brazil. And so if they're signaling no coup, then it's going to be much more difficult for him. He has, and, and when he has tried to bring massive crowds out, um, they've 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 often fallen short of what the expectations were, and so because the left, unlike the here in the U.S. necessarily, they because they can marshal uh, you know huge numbers in the streets too. It, I think it will be more difficult for him to seize this. It reminds me of Bolivia, uh, mm-hmm. where. Uh, they they successfully pulled off a coup in uh, what twenty twenty, and uh, kept Morales out of power for a year. But because of massive street protests, were forced to hold a new election, and the and then the Brazilian left won that election by so much that it couldn't be stolen. So I we might end up in that situation. Well, yeah, and and the last question I'll throw to you is uh, in the context of the so-called like pink wave that swept mm-hmm. Central and South America uh, in recent years, and there is a, a real case for that. I mean, you sure. go from Chile uh, to AMLO. Colombia, even. Colombia, right, exactly. Um, it, I'm curious what you think about that, and, and to your point, which is such an interesting one about coups, and uh, kind of coups from the West, is that it's it speaks to how the sort of left-right-wing dichotomy in populist movements is, is flipping in that you'll have, or in some ways it's the same, right? So you'll have a, a Bolsonaro who, or a, a Georgia Maloney um, mm-hmm. or someone, well, Maloney's not a good example, but somebody who's actually very against the kind of UN um, right. Davos groups that try to push what they see as a globalist agenda. Um, and so then your right-wing candidates are not good coup candidates, right? Because they right. don't support mm-hmm. the order that people like Joe Biden and the Davos class support. So right. it, it creates friction on that level, too. And I wonder if that dynamic, how that continues to play out in, in populism in Central and South America. That's a really good point. Yes, if, these, if, if right-wing populists in Central and South America take too seriously the kind of anti-Davos, like anti-globalist politics— then they're going to forget who put them in power in the first place, which was the globalists and, <laughs> and the Davos, like the, the Dulles brothers. Like you, you can't run against the Dulles brothers as a as a as a right wing uh, tin pot tin pot dictator if it's the Dulles brothers that are installing you in in power. And so that I think that's 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 an interesting point. If if Bolsonaro was you know playing nicer mm-hmm. uh, with the United States in the in the way that uh, Maloney is playing nice with the EU. Right. Uh, perhaps you wouldn't have, you know, you perhaps the uh, U.S. would be sending signals like, "Look, we're going to let things shape out." And he recognizes this. After uh, after the election, 
uh, in November 2020. He was doing the whole stop the steal, uh, you know, Trump actually won. Biden stole this election. Like, he was with Trump the whole time. After January 6th, he's like, ooh, okay, there's a new, new, new president's going to be in town. <laughs> and he has been uh, sending all sorts of warm signals toward the Biden administration. But it's kind of too little too late uh, well, at this point. And then I guess I'm curious going forward how global meddling, um, when you have the, I guess, the, the very real Davos class, uh, if their cultural priorities overcome their economic priorities or they can find a way to have them work in tandem if they start intervening on behalf of left populists. Yeah, we'll see. You gotta be, gotta be more clever. They're, but they're absolutely not gonna do that unless they're completely fake left populists because oh, left, well, of right, left populists you know, fundamentally challenge the, the, the entire uh, basis of the econo- economic inequality and the structure that the Davos crowd. They should. Like, right, right. So they would, so they're not, you know, Lula is very good at co-opting elements of that, um, of, of that kind of coalition, like getting enough of it to, to when he started out as a kind of a radical leftist, the union, union leader, uh, was not able to get to national power until he started compromising. So there's this whole uh, Lula's a sellout wing down in, down in Brazil. Although I, I, for my podcast this week at, at The Intercept, I interviewed this uh, a, a Sabrina Fernandez, a mar- kind of Marxist leftist, who's mm-hmm. part of this Marxist leftist uh, coalition that is saying Lula, Lula, yeah, might have been a sellout, but like he's our guy that's going to, like, a, like a, f- a popular front that's going to get rid of Bolsonaro. Yeah. Marx identified how the cultural priorities of the uh, you know, the, the wealthy elite, um, whether it's sex, age, religion, nationality, were the, to the benefit, the economic benefit of the wealthy and the elites. And so a true left populist, I think, would be out of whack with the Davos class on the cultural issues instead of being exploited. That's right. You've got one of those in, uh, in Peru— and they're already impeaching him a bunch of times. Yeah. Right. So, but but I think there's there's increasing I think awareness of how those divisions uh, turn people basically into cogs in this ridiculous capitalist machine. And I say that as a conservative, uh, but this is not real. This is not real capitalism. Not free markets. Um, in the the same way that you would say that probably about real socialism. <laughs> we vowed to do that one sh- uh, short. We didn't. But actually, this is a great, great transition into the next topic about the anti- the package of antitrust legislation mm-hmm. that just passed the House because uh, Matt Stoller made a, just a fantastic point about this. That's D2. Um, it, so the, this package of legislation passed the House of Representatives. Um, this is from the Hill. Uh, it's the—so this is a, from the Hill. It says these this package of bills would update filing fees for mergers to increase them for larger deals— allow state attorneys general to select their venue when enforcing antitrust laws and use the merger notification process to require parties to disclose subsidies they've received from countries that pose a risk to the U.S. Um, and, and Matt wrote about that over on his Substack, which you should definitely take a look at. But he made this really interesting point on Twitter as well about how Zoe Lofgren and Jim Jordan uh, were both opposed to this package. And Jim Jordan is someone who has tweeted, you know, break up Facebook, break up. So, someone who's completely 
anti-big tech. Zoe Lofgren um, was saying that actually this gives, she invoked January 6th in, in urging her colleagues to vote against this package, um, saying basically that it gives more power to Republicans who want to challenge the content moderation, which gets to the underlying issue of how Republicans and Democrats really can't agree on tech stuff anymore because Dem- Democrats want more power to, to regulate and Republicans want to take it away. So beneath the trust, the, the surface of the antitrust consensus uh, is something very different. Now, Mike Lee, Tom Cotton, the Heritage Foundation, everyone uh, su- supported the slate of, of uh, bills. Jim Jordan did not, and Repu- some Republicans voted against it, but it, it really was an interesting eruption. Yeah, and it's, it's, a, it's an amazing example of the way that politicians on both sides use the culture war yes. to distract from what's actually going on. And so let, let's play the clip because you have uh, Zolofgren tapping her culture war uh, buttons and, yes. you ha- and then you have Jim Jordan tapping his culture war buttons saying opposite things, but both for the same purpose, which is don't vote for this bill that big tech doesn't want you to vote for. Side with, side with big tech, but for these cultural reasons. So let's, let's play that, those, those, those uh, speeches of speech. Now, content moderation is important. We have seen in the January 6th committee uh, a lot of material that has uh, spread lies, that has incited violence, and that content should be moderated. It should not be subject to a bogus effort by state AGs to prevent content moderation uh, through the antitrust uh, provision. This bill would actually give $140 million to the DOJ so they can work with, continue to do what they're already doing, work with big tech to censor certain uh, information from getting to we the people. And why do I say that? Because we know it happened. Just a month ago, Mark Zuckerberg said the FBI come and told him not to allow the story about Hunter Biden's laptop to be on their platform. They gave him the old wink, wink. Oh, we think this is Russian disinformation, which we know it wasn't. So the Democrat says you should oppose this bill because of censorship. Censorship as she views it. The Republican says you should oppose this bill because of censorship. (laughs) Censorship of how how he views it. Now, that's how you know they're both lying Mm. because it's completely contradictory. But what are they both telling you to do? They're telling you to oppose this bill. Who wants you to oppose this bill? Big Tech wants you to oppose this bill. Just utterly incredible. And it's and this is such small potatoes too. This it gives it's 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 a significant win because it gives new resources to the FTC and it gives new resources to the antitrust division of the Department of Justice and it blocks uh, big tech from being able to take a lawsuit from if you file it in uh, Texas or Oklahoma or Colorado, big tech likes to yank it to a, their their favorite judge, say right. in New York or somewhere. It, it blocks you from being able to do that. So it's, it, you know, there, this, is, this is real stuff, but it's also not the, the big kind of Klobuchar bill that's in the Senate, uh, the, the, the Competition, the competition Act that would like actually, you know, come at big tech in a serious way. And they still threw everything they had at it. And we get arguments like this that, oh, don't do this to big tech because if you do, they're not going to be able to censor like we want them to. Or they're going to do lots of censoring mm-hmm. like we don't want them to. Right. So... Culture war, culture war, culture war, but act just in the end, 
side with big tech. Right. The culture war becomes this uh, this disguise for yeah. anti, I mean, anti-populist, you could say, or just like pro-tech governance. Like that's, yeah. it's just wearing the culture war as a costume to distract from the economic reality. And uh, again, Lena Khan, for instance, is not Conservative. There's no question about it. Right. Lena Khan is like the new Brandeisian, like in that field. She is on the left. No question about it. But again, she is advancing the economic interests of a lot of Republic, average Republican right. voters and a lot Small of average, and, yeah, yeah. average Americans who are absolutely being railroaded by an industry that, because of consolidation, also has cultural consolidation. And Stoller is really good on this, but it's absolutely true that because Facebook also owns Instagram and because Google also owns YouTube, that means the worldviews of the tiny C-suite class at all of these companies then dictate what constitutes acceptable speech, what constitutes, I mean, to Jordan's point, actually, whether the Hunter Biden story should be allowed to see the light of day on their platform, well, if they're all going to vote for Joe Biden, they're probably all going to lean in a certain direction on something like that, and they're probably going to listen uh, when the FBI, which the left has the strange new respect for, um, or I should say the center left has a strange new respect for, um, is is going to tell them, you know, be on the lookout. And, And that's why it makes really no sense to me to to use a especially from a right perspective a culture war um, a, a culture war argument to vote against this it is such a the American conservative had a good piece referring to it as a, a quote modest proposal even that might be an overstatement I mean when it comes to the serious emergency that is big tech this is a drop in the bucket and if you yeah. can't get on board with it it's I don't know <laughs> I yeah. don't know where and, we go from here yeah and Zoe Lofgren's argument was such a crazy bank shot. Uh, She's saying we need big tech to be able to do its content moderation free of these, you know, uh, anti-woke Republican state attorneys general. Uh, But the like, even if you pretend that she's serious about that for a second, the the bill is trying to stop uh, lawsuits from being taken out of, say, uh, Texas and taken to New York uh, the way that uh, a a serious antitrust piece of uh, uh, litigation was. That's not what happened with the one that she's talking about. The one she's talking about was the Fifth Circuit, which is down the circuit court down in Texas. Uh, so like it, it doesn't even apply to the thing that she claims that it's, it's applying to. Uh, just, uh, you know, and she represents roughly Silicon Valley. Like, mm-hmm. so, um, th- you know, that's, th- if you step back, you're like, oh, okay, we, s- we see what's going on here. So it, there are still elements of this that have to pass the Senate. It's not completely over. Um, but, but there is, support for this in the Senate, uh, it, it, it very likely, you know, it, it has a shot as long as people keep pressure on. Yeah, yeah. I think it, I think it absolutely has a shot, but big tech is going to uh, pull out all the stops, even for a quote, modest proposal. They're, they're going to, they have plenty of money to throw around to, to block even modest proposals. On that note, Ryan, I see you're, you're getting your yeah, glasses, get glasses on, up. which means you're, you're, you're ready to read your, to uh, the, the, the script. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Speaking of January 6th, actually, uh, you have a really interesting monologue today. Yeah, on this, uh, this book that's coming out in a couple weeks. It's huge. It's, it's, like, it's, 600, it's like 600 huge pages. Book. It's actually, it's very good. Uh, if you like uh, kind of congressional drama, which I do. I, I recommend I it. It's called, it's called Unchecked, the untold story behind Congress's botched impeachments of Donald Trump. And I got a, an early copy of it. And so I have a piece of it that I can 
I can do here. Before you do that, yeah. do you, does it feel almost like Bravo when you're? Do you like congressional drama yes. for the same reason it that does. you like the yeah, Real Housewives of New Jersey? It's the same stuff. If it's done right, it 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 definitely taps the same buttons. Tell sure. us, tell us what's in the book. Right, so it's January sixth, and so so history often unfolds through the collision of structural forces that operate independently of any specific decision or decision maker, but. Once in a while, a real moment of contingency arises in which a single person choosing between several genuinely viable options within their reach can set history on a different course. Now, according to the new book, Unchecked, the untold story behind Congress's botched impeachments of Donald Trump, leading Democrats pushed hard to impeach then-President Donald Trump the very day of the insurrection, but were beaten back by a reluctant House Speaker, Nancy Pelosi, who instead decided to gavel the chamber out of session once it had finished its business at hand. Republican tempers were running so hot against Trump, as documented in the new book by Rachel Bade and Karen Demergian, that forcing them to choose sides in the Senate that week could easily have resulted in his impeachment, removal, and disqualification from any future run for the White House. High-ranking Democrats wanted to give Republicans that chance. And to give a sense of how thirsty for MAGA blood Republican senators were, the book includes a scene in a Senate conference room. With protesters in the Capitol, Lindsey Graham looked over and saw the Senate sergeant-at-arms in the safe room with them. Graham yelled at them, what the hell are you doing here? Go take back the Senate. You've got guns. Use them. Graham then called White House attorney Pat Cipollone. Is it Cipollone or Cipollone? I don't know. I'm going to go with Cipollone. <laughs> Just guess. And he warned that Republicans would remove Trump from office using the 25th Amendment if he didn't call off the mob. Now, the first member of Congress we know of to begin drafting an article of impeachment, David Cicilline, a Rhode Island Democrat, scribbled it on scratch paper while locked down in the Rayburn House office building, according to the book. Representative Ted Lieu, because of his office's proximity to pipe bombs that had been discovered, by the way, whatever happened to those, he had to evacuate and he came to join Cicilline, where the two worked on the impeachment article together in the office. The two started lobbying other members of the Judiciary Committee with Lieu texting other members they, quote, should start drafting articles of impeachment now, regardless of what leadership says, unquote. Cicilline reached out to Representatives Jamie Raskin and Joe Neguse, and Raskin recommended going for the 25th Amendment, but if that didn't work, yes, impeachment. They worked on a 25th Amendment letter to uh, Vice President Mike Pence, but they kept pushing on impeachment throughout the day. They reached out to Judiciary Committee Counsel Aaron Hiller for help fine-tuning the impeachment draft. Hiller called his boss, Jerry Nadler Chief of Staff Amy Rutkin, and told her, quote, I'm about to do something that's completely unauthorized by leadership. Should I tell you or not? He told her, and she said, do it, after hearing about it. Hiller then told Cicilline, go find 200 co-sponsors right now to get it done. Don't wait for a blessing from leadership. Now, Ilhan Omar had also been working on an impeachment article. Now, because she gets so many death threats, she's one of the few members not in leadership with her own security. And so she was huddled with both parties' leaderships and Fort McNair during the riot. The aide she brought with her drafted an impeachment article that afternoon, and Omar publicly called for the House to vote on it. That evening, once the Capitol had been cleared and the House returned to finish its business, Cicilline found Steny Hoyer on the floor. Hoyer, as majority leader, controls the House floor schedule. Cicilline handed Hoyer the impeachment resolution and implored him to allow a vote right then and there. He hemmed and he hawed, but he passed the request on to Pelosi. 
Pelosi's staff first tried to tell Cicilline there were technical reasons that couldn't be done, but then just told him to move on. Pelosi decided to gavel the chamber closed and everybody went home. Now there's a saying, if you come for the king, you best not miss. Because if you miss, the king is going to make sure you never come for him again and that nobody thinks it's okay to come for the king. Trump came for the king that day and missed, and Pelosi and Hoyer just let him walk. The message was clear. It's okay to come for the king, or in our case, to come for democracy. If you hit it, you stay in power. If you miss, you live to fight another day. And we'll live with the decision Pelosi made that night not to hold Trump accountable instantly for the rest of our lives. And what, what I'm curious about from your perspective, because you would know this even, even better. Looking forward to what you got. One of my college jobs was working for the dissident feminist author Christina Hoff Summers as she wrote a re-release of her eerily prescient 2000 book, The War Against Boys. Men, Christina warned, were falling behind and the results would not be good for women or for society overall. As the women's movement pushed for some obviously necessary correctives to American culture, especially in education, the system came to be designed in ways that benefited girls, but at the expense of men. After not letting us vote or open credit cards on our own, women didn't find the plight of boys a terribly sympathetic cause at the time. Plus, many of the problems were happening in real time to kids at very young ages, making it super difficult to assess the consequences beyond projections. But now the results of this experiment are in, and they aren't good. Richard Reeves of the Brookings Institution released his new book, Assessing Those Results This Week, in Of Boys and Men. Crystal and Sager interviewed him here on Breaking Points, and I did about an hour with Richard last week over on my podcast at The Federalist. David Brooks wrote about the book at the New York Times, conceding, I learned a lot I didn't know. Brooks boiled down this new information to two points. One, that boys are much more hindered by challenging environments than girls. And two, that policies and programs designed to promote social mobility often work for women, but not men. Those are Brooks's words. Now, those two, of course, go hand in hand. Boys struggle more with, for instance, poverty and single parenthood than benefit less from the programs designed to help people overcome challenging circumstances. Christina showed how this was manifesting in seemingly harmless ways inside K-12 schooling, from curtailing recess and rough-and-tumble play to using emotion-based teaching methodology in math and science that helps girls but makes schools a, school a little bit harder for boys. Boys end up hating school, underachieving, and turning to drugs or crime or other bad habits in higher numbers. They leave high school in a hole that's then hard to dig out of and then leave college with debt and in, in go right into a hookup culture that disincentivizes monogamy into a world where fulfilling work is as hard to come by as purpose and meaning. What a lot of people don't talk about in this context is sex and dating, but of course these variables are very salient. A recent survey that made the rounds this week after being covered in Psychology Today found 53% of single men said fear of being creepy reduces their likelihood of interacting with women. Now, some stigmas, like creepiness, are obviously healthy, but this shows a widespread irrational fear that is seriously throwing a wrench into American communities. Brooks's columns ran, column ran alongside another column in the Times this week, one that asserted in the headline, quote, dating is broken, 
going retro could fix it. This is just one in a long, long line of recent versions of the same argument from progressive women that retro norms may have been healthier for women. Christine Emba of the Washington Post wrote Rethinking Sex. Louise Perry of the New Statesman wrote The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. BuzzFeed last year published a fascinating article about why Gen Z is, quote, rethinking sex positivity. The Times column published this week cited a 2010 study from the Journal of Family Psychology that found, quote, couples who waited until marriage reported not just less consideration of divorce, but also higher relationship satisfaction, better communication, and superior sex when compared with couples who began began having sex within a month of their first date or before they started dating. The story quoted one of the authors of that study suggesting, quote, rapid sexual initiation often creates poor partner selection because intense feelings of pleasure and attachment can be confused for true intimacy and lasting love. With a few caveats, economist Marina Adshade said back in 2019, when you crunch the numbers, quote, married people appear to be healthier and live longer than those who are single, separated, divorced, or widowed. They have better mental health, fewer health conditions, and recover faster from illness. In the past, said Adshade, studies found that marriage provided more health benefits to men than women, but that effect is disappearing, and more recent studies find pretty similar outcomes for men and women. All right, so all of that said, if men are too afraid of being creepy to set that process in motion, women are in big trouble too. The left is wrong about the way some traditional norms, ones built on healthy expressions of human nature, brought about more fulfilling lives. The right, though, is wrong about how gravely the economic hollowing out of the American economy exacerbated the destabilization of sex, marriage, and community. This th- Just this week, the Times also ran an insane article on the death of the starter home, which developers pin on red tape that removed financial incentives for them to be built, for those homes to be built, and left home ownership much further out of reach for millennials. Men's wages have remained stagnant while women's have grown in recent decades. TVs and phones have gotten cheaper while homes and healthcare have gotten more expensive. Student loan debt is skyrocketing. Men are suffering disproportionate deaths of despair at higher rates. We're more comfortable in a material sense, but less happy. And we're treating the biological reality of sex differences as something that's less important when having a healthy recognition of those differences and even those similarities is actually what would serve everyone better instead of policies and norms that try to plug a square peg into a round hole and a round peg into a square hole. Ryan, we're about to talk about an article you wrote, um, and I believe we have Katie Halper Mm -hmm. joining us. Uh, This is a very, very interesting story. If you want to tee it up a bit, because you wrote about it over at The Intercept, that would be great. Close to home for us, too. So Katie Katie Halper, as, as probably most people here know, friend of this show, former friend of Rising, uh, on on Monday was friend of the American people. Friend really. of the American yeah. people, <laughs> all the world's people. Uh, on Monday, she was uh, co-hosting Rising, as, as folks know. Uh, on you do a radar on the uh, from the left, a radar from the right, and then you do the rest of your your segments, and then they post it and move on. If anybody watched Rising Monday, they noticed that there was only a radar from the right, not one from the left. Hmm. Turned out that she had done hers on a segment very similar to it was on the same topic that we had done one. Uh, you know, very recently, uh, which was the controversy around Rashida Tlaib uh, saying that you can't be progressive and support Israel's apartheid government. Katie took actually an even deeper look at the question of whether Israel qualifies as an apartheid government than than I did last week uh, in my, what we don't call them radars anymore, we call them 
monologues, sure. counterpoints. <laughs> we talk, we talk at you. I call them and then we talk Ryan to each other. rants. Right, my rants. <laughs> and they, over at Rising, um, paused, refused to run uh, the the radar, and just recently was she was told that uh, not only are they not going to uh, write it, that she's not welcome back. And so we're going to be joined by uh, Katie Halper to tell the tell the story on this in just a moment. And we are, in fact, joined by friend of the show, Katie Halper now. Uh, Katie, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And so, and so Katie, also send, send James, uh, producer James, a couple of links. Send him, send him the video. Tell people where they can go and watch your, your full vi- video that you've produced. And we'll, and we'll make sure that we put that in the, in the links uh, at okay. the bottom as well. Great, yeah. And we're not going to do a screening party right now? <laughs> well, we, um, we don't have, quite have the tech capacity to do the screening party yet, but people can. Yeah. Uh, no. Um, yeah. So it's, it's right now. It's at Breakthrough News, uh, their YouTube channel. It'll be okay. up at my channel shortly uh, as well. Uh, YouTube.com/slash The Katie Helper Show. But definitely check out Breakthrough News. I want to make sure that they get, you know, a lot of right. eyes and, and credit. Um, and then I did something at, at uh, YouTube.com/slash The Katie Helper Show as well, where I just kind of did a a little explanation, not too detailed, about um, what happened. Right. And so tell yeah. us. So you sh- so Monday you showed up. You you co-hosted the show in the studio. You submitted your radar. Uh, what happened next? So I, del- I I mean I had submitted it I guess the night before. Although as you guys probably know, it's not. I mean I, it's not even a submission. I mean I you just do it, and, and ostensibly, unless mm-hmm. you're reading probably like Nazi propaganda, that you just <laughs> get the right to, to, to do it. But I, you know, people saw that it was called, you know, apartheid exists, you know, yes, Israel does have apartheid, something like that. Yes, apartheid exists in Israel. This was not a piece that you couldn't tell was about uh, Israeli apartheid. It was a piece that clearly made the argument that uh, there was an apartheid system in Israel. I delivered it. Uh, I think it went well. I like to think it went well. Uh, I delivered it. I did some more hosting. There was this interesting moment, which apparently isn't that unprecedented, where I, uh, you know, one of the co-hosts then read a pickup where he kind of reiterated something that Jonathan Greenblatt had said, Jonathan Greenblatt of the Anti-Defamation League of the ADL. Um, And... Then when I left, I had to run off to do another show because I had to do a Useful Idiots taping. And I got a call, and it was very apologetic. And I, I, sa- I said this in my video, and I want to make sure people know that the producers I was working with were really, were like nothing but supportive. They wanted, uh, I hope I don't get them fired by saying that they wanted their higher-up to do the right thing. Maybe that no. makes you fireable in corporate media. I think that's a really important point, though, Katie, because I was going to ask you, and that was our experience. Like, mm-hmm. when we submitted radars, I never had one that was pushed back. I don't think you ever had one that was just pushed back. just goes right again. in the teleprompter. Yeah, Katie, yeah. like my, my you said, it's, and all. it's right. not really yeah. a submission. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, and the producers know that this is part of what makes the show great. Um, that right. you, you have this perspective that, by the way, is like fairly mainstream left perspective. I mean, you have... Amnesty International's, it's, it's basically Amnesty International's perspective. And then, Katie, what was your sense when you have everybody working on the show? Again, this was our experience. They're great. They understand this makes what the, this is right. what makes the show great. It got 
it got moved up the chain of command. Um, right. And that's where the problem started to become very, very clear. What was your experience as that moved up the chain of right. command? So I was talking to producers like basically Monday through Wednesday about trying to figure out a way to make sure it would get on air. Um, again, they were really supportive. Uh, and then I got a an email from Bob, C uh, sorry, I got a, um, a phone call from uh, Bob Cusack, who in no uncertain terms told me not going to run it, uh, not going to run the piece, which kind of shocked me just because I wasn't expecting the phone call. And I just, uh, I don't know, I felt very chastised and, and kind of put in my place, which mm. is fine. I guess they have the right to do that. It kind of undermines their shtick of being uh, independent minded and not uh, having talking points or not having, I mean, their shtick is that you don't have to stay within this certain lane, right? Um, you're allowed to say things both on the left and on the right that you're not allowed to say in most corporate media. So anyway, I got the, the call from him. And then I, uh, not to get too into like the nitty gritty of how this show works, but I was then, because I was told that you can't do Israel op opinion pieces, but you could do segments. And I go on the show every week to do a segment. So I was like, okay, so can I do this for my segment tomorrow? And I, I asked the producers that. And then I was directed to an email that I got from an executive there who told me in no uncertain terms, um, I wasn't needed. My services were no longer needed. And that's uh, an executive at News Nation, or, or as, at, not News Nation, at Nexstar, not at Nexstar, The Hill. Right. Okay, because right, right, The right, Hill sorry. is owned so, by this yeah. big media company, Nexstar, which recently, by the way, hired Chris Cuomo to host a show mm -hmm. on News Nation. But that, but Katie was a, a bridge too far for Nexstar. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if only I had covered up my, uh, I'm an only child, so sadly I didn't have the chance to cover <laughs> up the crimes of my brother uh, and, you know, commit a total, uh, uh, engage in a total uh, <laughs> conflict of interest and also, you know, probably grab a woman's ass at a party and uh, engage in sexual harassment. But no, if only I'd done that, I would have gotten my own show, I guess. But uh, yeah, so then I got that email, you know, which, and that really shocked me. I have right. to admit, I just didn't and think it was I can like, read that. Katie, sure, I, can, yeah. I can read it. I have it here. She writes, uh, we wanted to let you know that we will not be needing you to appear on Rising tomorrow a.m., Please feel free to submit any unpaid invoices for your work on Rising. We wish you all the best. And also, uh, Gary Waitman, who's the chief communications officer for Nexstar, he uh, declined to comment uh, for the story for The Intercept, and also presumably he's declining to comment for this segment as well. Uh, so, yeah, so you got that email where you're saying, okay, well, uh, let's, do let's do this as a segment, and then a top executive writes, actually, there's not going to be a segment send us all your invoices and we wish you all the best. Right. And I've been doing this, these segments for three years. I mean, mm -hmm. I did it when Crystal and Sagar were at the Hill and I did it um, during this reiteration, um, which you both were part of, obviously. And I really did. Like The thing I appreciated about the Hill was that you could say things that were taboo in other places and other corporate news. And, you know, I knew that there were a lot of things that were said on that show that I disagreed with. But again, that was the shtick. It was like someone from the left, someone from the right. Um, and seeing that the kind of um, censorship and uh, cowardice, I would say, around issues uh, that exist in so much corporate media, seeing that it existed at the Hill, which kind of prides itself for being outside of that censorship, was really depressing. And it felt, you know, I'd love to be on your show and be like, but I'm, I'm going to, you know, get back at these people or I'm going to 
uh, persevere and do my own thing. And I am going to, obviously, you can find my stuff at youtube.com slash the Katie Halper Show, at Useful Idiots. You can join my Patreon, patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. But right now, I'm just to be honest, I mean, it's just disappointing and it's saddening and it's infuriating and it's frustrating and you just feel very powerless. Now, the good thing, again, is like the silver lining is that I, I filmed this video with Breakthrough News, which is an actually independent, actually independent media. Um, and so, cause I was really determined to get this out there. Like I did not, like they could silence me at the Hill and they could fire me, but I wanted to make sure that this argument got out there, which was, you know, basically I defend Rashida Tlaib from the typical attacks that she gets. I called out ADL for, um, I think just for saying that it's Israel is not an apartheid state. I mean, it's just, okay, you can say that, but unfortunately, not only does Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch say that uh, it's apartheid, not only do obviously uh, Palestinians say it's apartheid, not only obviously do Palestinian human rights organizations say that, but you have uh, the Israeli and their Israeli Jews, the Israeli Jews at Beth Selim say it's apartheid. And I say that, and I mean, this is another issue of kind of like the, the way you're given some protection when you're Jewish. Like I'll be called a self-loathing Jew as opposed to an anti-Semite. And self-loathing Jew, you mean that, look, you can get fired, obviously, over saying this, but there is some relative privilege you get within this conversation if you're Jewish. I think, like, I feel more comfortable talking about this stuff than probably other people do. And, of course, this is a brings up a larger issue of how people are not allowed to report on this. I mean, obviously, Shireen Abu Akleh is someone who literally was killed because she was reporting on this issue, um, and I'm not comparing myself at all. Like I'm, I'm like doing op-ed pieces from the comfort of my own home. She was there on, on the ground. And ironically, I was able to talk about Shireen, Shireen Abu Akleh at the Hill. That was one of the things I appreciated that I could talk about that. And I could, I even said that Israel lied, which I guess was controversial, but it's not because we know they lied because they said that they, they had foot, they released footage of, of a Palestinian shooting, pretending that that was, Shereen Abu Akleh, and then it was revealed that wasn't. It was physically impossible from that alley from, uh, mm -hmm. for that bullet, you know. So again, that was so refreshing. Like, I really appreciate that I could sit there wearing, like, corporate media makeup and corporate media outfits and mm -hmm. have all the, the like, high, high production value that goes into corporate media. And it, I think it's really powerful to hear someone say, Israel lied, they killed Shireen Abu Akleh. It's very powerful to hear that and see that in that context, as opposed to just, you know, me from my own home saying it. And I really do think that there was a value in reaching people in that way. And I think that that's what The Hill provides is a kind of air of professionalism that often, because the left doesn't have huge funders the way the right does, I mean, it, we don't see this as much on the left. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting that when you push, you find or you discover the corporate third rails um, and you have to push to do it. Um, but this is like just such a good example of, of that. And, you know, I, Katie, like, again, I, I disagree with the argument, but it's a it's sure. a reasonable argument. Um, right. And it's within the bounds of regional, reasonable debate. And when you weaponize identity politics to stifle it, which I'm assuming right. is what the Hill, or I shouldn't even say the Hill, it sounds like it was Nexstar, um, was was doing going in that direction, then you're, again, this, this is going to fester. It's not going to heal anything. It makes everything fester. It makes everything worse. Um, and it's it's a good example of, like, this is just profoundly profoundly sad and yeah, it I is think sad. it's and ridiculous. I, I just want to say also some of the people who I, and I encourage people to watch the video, which is again at Breakthrough News and will then also be at the Katie Helper show. 
but I quote Israeli politicians who say it's apartheid. I mean, one interesting thing we could do a whole show about this is that Israelis tend to be much more honest about this than um, Americans who are defending Israel. Uh, sometimes they're honest about it in a very kind of crude way, like they don't care. Like, sure, like you have Benny Morris, who is this historian who, not to get too into the weeds of Israeli historiography, but he's he's someone he's part of this movement called the New Historians of Israel, and they really. Um, they challenged the Zionist narrative of, of history and of the founding of Israel. And he wrote this uh, essential book, this really seminal work called 1948. And it documents meticulously the ethnic cleansing that was uh, the basis of the foundation of Israel. And he, over the years, and he was of course persona non grata because of that book. And over the years, he's gotten much more conservative and very right wing and hawkish. And people are like, Benny Morris, you documented that there was ethnic cleansing and now you want Israel to like bomb Iran. How do you reconcile those two things? And he was like, yeah, there was ethnic cleansing. And if there had been more ethnic cleansing, we wouldn't have a problem today, which is just like, I appreciate that honesty. Right. And I find it a dis disturbing uh, idea that to wish that there had been more ethnic cleansing, but at least he admits the facts on the ground. Right, and high profile figures too. The, the previous two prime ministers, Naftali yes. Bennett and Benjamin Netanyahu, both publicly said they're not for a two-state solution anymore. Like yeah. that's their that's their public posture. But if you and, if you said that in the United States, right. you're like that's outrageous. How could you possibly right. say exactly. that? But they're yeah. not like now Yair Lapid is he still pretends he's supportive of a two-state solution right. and supports a Palestinian state. But because he kind of represents a more centrist center right, uh, you know, flank of it. But back in the United States, if you said, I don't support a Palestinian state, I don't support a two-state solution, they'd be right. like, that's insane. You're crazy. Like, that's... Right, right. The, so the, yeah. the divorce between the two discourses is, is fascinating. Yeah, it is fascinating. I think it's because we see people in the United States struggle to, to trying to fit in justifying Israel the way it exists and mm -hmm. their government with a more kind of human rights. It's just a bad look in the United States in a way that it's not at all in Israel because it's being run by an apartheid government. I mean, I, spe I think that speaks to how apartheid-ish it is that they don't even have to cover. And what's interesting is that people I quote in the video, I quote like literally a dozen, I think combined uh, former Israeli officials and, and former Israeli prime ministers who either say we have apartheid or say we're going to have apartheid if the two-state solution collapses. There's clearly no viable two-state solution right now. Um, and so that, you know, definitionally they're, they're existing in an apartheid state. But that's the thing. And Emily, you brought up identity politics. What's so interesting is like, I'm Jewish. Yeah, and, the, and you invoke that right away. You invoked that in the monologue when I was reading the transcript. I was like, the, she starts by saying that you were disappointed as a Jewish person. Yeah. You know, I think I may have cut that out from the top. So, uh... I had that originally, and then I think while I was reading it, I decided to put it later mm. in. Mm. So I should, you guys can update that or whatever. But um, I put it in later, and I point out, I say, I as a, I'm Jewish. I was born in New York City. My family is from the, uh, well, we're fourth generation New Yorkers, not to brag. But my family before <laughs> that was from Eastern Europe. And I could today, I could today, right now, decide to move to Israel. I could get a job. I could build a home. I could w walk around freely. Uh, and so could Jonathan Green, Greenblatt from the ADL. So could Jake Tapper, who does the, the uh, segment about Rashida Tlaib that I react to. All of us would be fine. And someone like Rashida Tlaib can't even go back to her family home in what is now Israel. Right, they've barred her from visiting. Yeah. yeah. So again, I really, I'm Congress. just, 
I'm just really, it's, it's, you know, again, I'd like to be more, feel like more, um, yay, I'm free. Now I can say whatever I want. And that's true. But, you know, it is depressing that you can't do that at certain places, especially places that kind of like to go against cancel culture, like to exactly. go against censorship. Like, you know, how much is that? How, how sincere are you in your opposition to censorship and cancel culture if you're perpetuating it yourself? Right, yeah, if there's one Nexstar property that they should know um, not to mess with in this sense, it would be rising. So it's, yeah. it's just really, really sad. And, and I, I remember we, we had some of those issues and it was like, well, should we give this airtime? We're always air on the side of right. absolutely air it. Let the debate happen. Exactly, that's right. the thing. Jonathan Greenblatt can come on the Hill and make his argument. Sure, I'd be happy on. to debate him or they could he do a debate. On, he can come on here, come on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Open I mean, invitation. I, yeah, open viewers invitation. aren't stupid. Like yeah. we don't need to treat viewers like children. Like they're right. they're as smart as any executive at Nextstar. Yeah, <laughs> they can yeah. listen to a debate and come out with a, an opinion that's that's what, reasonable. What also scares me and depresses me is that they were comfortable enough firing me for trying to get this story on air. Like they don't, they're not afraid that right. this would come out. That's what's so disturbing to me. Like, right. don't you just for the the optics of it not want to make it look like you fired someone for? making a video which made yep. the arguments that are made by Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, the Israeli human rights organization, Beth Selim, and countless Israeli officials, uh, including former prime ministers. That might be the most demoralizing part, that they just it don't is. seem to care. And they're not so, going to yeah. face any consequences. Like, I'm sure their donors are happy. I'm sure that whoever... And then another thing is, as a Jew, can I just be honest? As a Jew, I really don't like when things perpetuate the stereotype right. that, like, you can't talk about this because people are going to get mad and certain people control the media. And I'm not saying that's true at all. And you got the great thing is you got a bunch of Christian Zionists out there. So that's a great thing. Then you can say, you can criticize. You can under, uh, undermine the trope with the Christian Zionists. There yeah, right. Exactly. But this is not a good look for anyone. I mean, and I, again, as a Jew, I'm really offended. What about my, like, my free speech as a Jewish person? I'm just not allowed to talk about this in a way that uh, goes against certain narratives. No, you're a bigot, Katie, in fact. I'm no. a self, I've internalized, I've internalized anti-Semitism is what it is. I'm go. a self-loathing Jew. And I also want to say that, like, I just want to give such a shout out to people like Ali Abu Nima at Electronic Intifada and the people at Mondo Weiss. And the people uh, on the ground in Palestine, in Israel, who are reporting on this stuff, who face so many challenges, and they do great work, and everyone should check that out. Yeah. Well, Katie, you know what, what you what you've done this week is not not without some personal sacrifice, even if it's not, you know, on on the scale of uh, you know some of the people who are on the ground in in Palestine. But we don't need to. I don't think we need to compare it. I think right. it was sure. courageous for you to come forward. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and we really appreciate you uh, coming on here to tell us, tell us the story. Thank you. And happy uh, Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah. Hmm. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. I know you guys celebrate. <laughs> yeah. There you go. <laughs> Right. Oh, Katie, Katie, Howe. Katie Howe. as, as always, uh, one of uh, one of my favorite people to talk to. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed, we so appreciate Katie Helper and and Katie's willingness not to give in. That's right, and that's the good news. It, there are shows like this, um, and that's the importance of what Crystal and Sager has done, and what all the viewers have helped Crystal and Sager do. 
yeah. right? That like that that Katie um, can have this issue with Nexstar and come here and tell right. the true story um, and and go to breakthrough all, news, breakthrough news yeah. can go to all of these other channels and tell the story and get it out to as many people as possible. That is made possible um, by what the amazing uh, viewers and listeners here have yeah. have helped Crystal and Sagar build. It's just in- incredibly important. And that's part of what drew right. us here too. Yeah. For sure. And it's what will draw us here on Wednesday next week. So uh, there will be no Friday counterpoints. Or we'll, we'll do a Friday counterpoints on Wednesday. Yeah. But, uh, yeah It will still be Friday counterpoints. TBD. Still, still have a Friday vibe. TBD. Yeah, yeah. there certainly will be a Friday vibe because uh, we're both uh, heading out on, on trips. Right. And then uh, after that, we'll be back to the regularly scheduled Fridays. Your regularly scheduled programming. That's right. All right. <laughs> Everybody have a great weekend. Talk to you soon. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.